outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations Podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light. Go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everyone, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations Podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. I'm your host, Tony Peterson. And today's episode is all about all of the things that can go wrong when we hunt and how to eliminate as many of them as possible. Before I get into this, I want to let you know that the Meat Eater Trivia board game is finally available. This is a game where conservation literally wins every time, and that holds true when you buy it as well, since $1 from each purchase goes directly to conservation. So if you've been listening and thinking that the crew at Meat Eater is comprised of a bunch of dim-witted, slack-jawed, first-light flunkies who really don't know the difference between a quail and an ostrich, now is your chance to show your stuff to your family or your deer camp brothers and sisters or your bar buddies. Head over to TheMeatEater.com, check it out. While you're there, keep a lookout for other deals too. I know we have a lot of sales here at Meat Eater, but our Black Friday sale is a monster. There's a ton of different products marked way down. So whether you're having a little treat yourself moment or you need to get a little Christmas shopping done, you might find something at the site that is perfect for either. And it might just be way, way marked down. Okay, about this episode. You know, while our Southern hunting brothers and sisters might still be experiencing lots of rut anticipation and excitement, many of us are looking at the reality of the situation as it is now. The rut, for the most part, is functionally over. Sure, you can chase the second rut in a couple of weeks, or you could spend your time setting, I don't know, unicorn traps. Probably have similar results. This week, it's a time for reflection and a time to think long and hard about what went wrong on your hunts. So buckle up, my little hombres, because it's time to think about failure. Failure. 
All right, you guys know that I'm a space nerd. I fly that flag loud and proud. And even though Mark tries to make fun of me for it, we all know that space is 10 billion times more interesting than pollinators or whatever weird shrub fetish the old mustachioed madman has. I don't remember when it was, and I'm too lazy to dig through my archives. But at one point, I released a Foundations episode that was based around the building of the James Webb Space Telescope and how they got it into space, which was no small feat. It took a huge team of people, way too smart, to spend their free time sitting in a camo diaper 17 feet up in a tree trying and mostly failing to kill a deer. One of the interesting things about the process for building that telescope which has allowed us to image galaxies that are as far away as about 13.4 billion light years, or to frame that up, take 13.4 billion times 6 trillion, if you want to know how many miles away that is. This telescope, which is a one of a kind, and I mean, after all, you couldn't just send the blueprints to China or some other manufacturing nation and expect them to turn these suckers out. It literally is a one of a kind thing. This thing was decades in the making, and it's a piece of finely tuned scientific instruments that could fail in so many different ways. That's not even addressing the big one, which is just getting it into space. Rockets and their highly flammable rocket fuel occasionally explode long before delivering their payloads into space. Now, when something like the James Webb Space Telescope gets into space, it's not a time to cheer too loudly just yet. Due to the size of it and the design, this thing had to be folded up and built to unfold and unfurl while it took a million-mile journey to its final destination in space. There, it had to finish unfolding and unfurling and then calibrate several mirror panels while also cooling off to a temperature that would allow it to image infrared light without any interference. I can't imagine the anxiety of being involved with that. Mostly because the entire thing was built with 344 single point failures. If any of those 344 failures happened, the results were pretty severe and would disrupt the mission. In this case, from the super thin sunshield spreading out like wings to the honeycomb shaped primary mirror that is coated with gold and looks pretty badass, things had to go perfectly right. If one of those 344 had gone wrong, it's very likely that we would have launched a $10 billion paperweight into space. This is the nature of single point failures, but doesn't address them completely. A failure at one point might not necessarily mean a direct end to the functionality, but it would mean that other single point failures were about to happen. That's the old cascading failures concept. Now, I know this sounds like a giant roll of the dice with a lot of taxpayer money involved, but the truth is, the team that designed this deep space observer left as little to chance as possible. They weren't just crossing their fingers that it would work. They built in redundancies when they could and were very diligent about testing and retesting the whole thing in a lab before shooting it off into space. It worked, even when the odds seemed like they were way, way stacked against the whole project. This, my friends, is kind of like the odds of going out on any given sit and killing a big buck, or a medium-sized buck, or if it's anything like my season, a doe. There are single-point failures in deer hunting, and they all have an opportunity to take us from deer hunting heroes to zeros real fast. Let me tell you about two that recently happened to me to frame this whole thing up. 
A couple of weeks ago, I drove to the great state of North Dakota to try to arrow a public land buck. The spot I walked into is one that I hunted for a few days in 2019. Now, I sat there for those days and I killed a great buck. You know, it's a pinch point along a river and it's prime spot for bucks traveling during the rut. I figured with the massive cold front we had and the general lay of the land, it would sort of be a done deal before too long. And honestly, the first year I saw after a few hours of sitting was a very solid 11 pointer. He walked into 26 yards and when my cameraman finally had a clear view, I realized I was about to kill a big public land buck on my very first sit. It was one of those shots where the buck was totally relaxed. He was just munching on acorns and I had all the time in the world. Now I remember my pin being right on his vitals and when I hit the release, it should have been all over. But what it sounded like was a very loud twang and I watched a very healthy deer run away. I still don't know for sure what went wrong, but upon many, many replays of the whole thing, it's clear that my string caught on something. And listen, I was all bulked up because it was really cold and super windy, and I just didn't have the clearance I needed for that shot angle. That's a single point failure. It was sad, but it got a lot sadder as I was recapping the miss with the camera, and halfway through, the cameraman's eyes bugged out, and he said, big buck, right there. I turned around and found out that he was not lying. Ten yards away, looking at me, was a really good buck. He wanted to get past us, but he wasn't sure since he knew there were two dudes in the tree right next to him. When he looked away, I drew, and when he started to move, I did something really, really dumb. I quietly murped him. In my head, I thought he was leaving, so I tried to buy myself an extra two seconds to aim and shoot, but he was super close, and he was on edge, and he wasn't having none of that shit. Single point failure number two, dumb dumb, dumb. The ones that come directly from our brain and influence our actions throughout an encounter are the hardest to address. So I'm going to get to them later. Right now, I want to address some of the single point failures that just don't need to happen. I've been hunting cold weather whitetails since I could hunt. And when that big 11 point came in, I just bulked up in clothes I had never worn before. Now I drew on stand, but I didn't really check my string clearance. I didn't think I needed to. Do you know how dumb that was? Because I do. That's a single point failure you can address so easily. Another one might be just how loud your stand and stick setup is. Or if you aren't going mobile, how loud your setups are in general. Do you have a ladder stand that always pops super loudly when you climb in? Does it have those loose D-clip things holding the ladder together that are always making noise? Have you climbed in there when it's 60 degrees and when it's 10 degrees? Because there might be a difference. One of the things I did this year when I had to hunt with Steve Ranella down in Oklahoma was that I bought a bunch of extra random stuff like tow ropes. I didn't know if he or the camera guys would have the right stuff for tree stand hunting, so I picked up some extra stuff just in case that you always need on every hunt. And the tow ropes I bought, they all have little metal carabiners on them. And you know what happens when you're swinging ropes with little metal carabiners on them around? They ping off of other metal pieces of gear. Why we think we need to constantly improve on good old no metal rope is beyond me. Why I use that stuff when I know better is also beyond me. Now, that might not be a single point failure in the realm of a ruining a hunt type of thing, but why risk it? Sitting a spot with the wrong wind 
Now that's a single point failure. That's a big one. But it isn't as simple as the wind blowing right to where you think the deer will be. Of course, that will derail your plans most likely. But too perfect of a wind probably will too. At least in certain setups that aren't on movement funneling locations. If the deer have the option to get the wind in their favor when they travel, they almost always will. Now if that's the case on your perfect wind setup, your wind actually might not be as good as it seems. You probably know plenty of issues we often have with gear and with where we choose to hunt based on conditions. But do you know what the source of most of our hunting single point failures is? Our brains, which have a tendency to function at less than optimal when a deer we want to shoot makes its presence known. The problem with this is that we feel like we need to make something happen. That little merp that I gave that second North Dakota buck was a huge single point failure. It literally cost me that deer and I have no one to blame but my own dumb ass. I'll never forget my good buddy telling me a story about hunting with a cousin of his like 15 years ago. My buddy was running a camera and his cousin was running a bow. So as soon as they saw a good buck walking their way in the woods, my buddy started filming. What surprised him was hearing his cousin shuffle around and then suddenly bang his rattling antlers together. That buck looked up, said, oh, hell no, and turned around. Now, let me explain this. That buck was walking in naturally. He probably knew there weren't two big bucks about to square off 60 yards in front of him, yet the hunter panicked and tried to make something happen. Single point failure, and man, that's a doozy. Closing time. Not when the bars are shutting down, but when it's time for you to seal the deal on a deer are where a hell of a lot of single point failures come into play. This is one of the reasons I'm pretty sick of trophy hunting, honestly. I know we all want to kill big bucks, but you'll never be good at that unless you get good at killing does and little bucks. There's no jump in the line on this one, and I'm sorry to tell you that. The process of ranging a deer, finding the exact moment to draw, using the right pin or dialing in correctly, and then if you have to, stopping the deer to execute the shot. Man, any of those things can go wrong. And when they do, most of the time, the whole thing's over. What compounds that issue is that if you take some time to figure out how to shoot forkies and two-year-olds, they may let you know some of those single-point failures slide that a mature deer just wouldn't. And on that note, let me tell you something else. It's often harder to earn a really good shot opportunity and see it through on a mature doe than a mature buck. In high-pressure areas, a mature doe will just not tolerate your failures. And she's never going to be out of her mind crazy with lust like her boyfriend might be. Remember that in your process to become a better deer hunter. Now, the more you work through a complex, ripe-for-disaster situation like trying to shoot a deer with a pointy stick, the easier it becomes for you to engineer a scenario where all of those single-point failures remain um, unfailed. That's not a word. I'm a writer, I swear. Although I am an outdoor writer, so the story kind of tracks. Of course, long before you get a shot, you might have set yourself up for a single point failure that you don't even understand. I've talked about this a few times, but recently witnessed it in the northern Wisconsin. And I'll tell you what, laziness in general is your enemy. It's a breeding ground for single point failures. You know, from hunting easy stands to just not really scouting to you name it. But one area where it's obvious to me is in where you park your vehicle. I have a neighbor to one of my Wisconsin properties who has 40 acres, 
The front half is a hayfield, and the back half is part high woods and part swamp. I'm just making an educated guess here, but he's probably hunting the high woods, which borders the field. It's a strip of cover that's maybe 100 yards wide from the look of it on OnX. Now, when I was there hunting my property next to his a couple weeks ago, I saw his truck parked right on the edge of that high woods, right on the edge of the open hayfield during the rut. But here's the thing about that. Any deer that comes into that field is going to spook because that truck is only there when he hunts. Any deer that sees that truck through the woods is probably going to spook or get edgy. And sure, that might just be a lone doe that's coming through that freaks out a bit or a little spike, but those negative reactions tend to change the vibe of the woods. What's worse is that 40 acres is roughly 400 yards by 400 yards. If he parked down the road and walked in, it would maybe tack on an extra 10 minutes, but would almost guarantee a different, better hunt. To me, that's a single point failure that's just kind of unacceptable. And yes, he can walk just fine. He's younger than I am and not suffering from some degenerative disease or recovering from a nasty skydiving accident. Now, I recently did a podcast with Mark where we talked about this quite a bit. And the truth is, while I disagree with Kenyon on a lot of things, like the proper facial hair for a man, he's right about how he thinks through hunting scenarios before he sets up. He's kind of a what-can-go-wrong-probably-will-go-wrong kind of hunter, and I am too. This is because there are hundreds of variables during every one of your hunts that is way beyond your control. What is in your control are hundreds of other variables that you should consider with most of your setups. I think this might be the biggest whitetail single-point failure out there, which is not really considering how many things can go wrong and not making a valiant effort to at least curb the most obvious ones. You know, the easiest ones to address, so to speak. Because really, becoming a consistently successful whitetail hunter is just kind of a war of attrition against your own ignorance and bad habits. If that sounds too harsh, let me put it a different way. Personally, I'm always fighting my own laziness and my own second guessing. I'm constantly pulled toward easy setups when I know that a little extra work is almost always a better strategy experience teaches you the best way to do this stuff, but it doesn't totally erase our desires to shortcut the whole process and just kind of phone it in. But when we do that, that's not where the rewards come from. And it's mostly a recipe for frustration. A better bet that seems, you know, like less fun because it's more work is to just put in the effort. Think through what you're doing and why you're doing it and what can go wrong if X, Y, or Z happens. You don't have to overthink it to the point of vapor locking your brain, but you should consider, you know, what are some of the biggest single point failures you've dealt with and try to figure out how to mitigate them now. Eventually, some of the issues that constantly plague other hunters will be nothing more than a distant memory for you, and you can work on more problems. This is a good strategy for life, honestly. Take care of something little and let that good habit snowball into something else, because if we go the other way, the single point failures might stack up into those cascading failures. And that is not a fun place to be. Think about this and think about coming back next week. Cause I'm going to talk about muzzleloader hunting and why I think it's the best opportunity for bow hunters who want a little extra firepower on their side while they hunt a season that most other hunters just don't care a whole lot about. 
That's it for this week. I'm Tony Peterson. This has been the Wired to Hunt Foundation's podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. As always, thank you so much for listening and so much for your support. As I mentioned in the beginning, Mediator has a monster sale going on right now. Head on over to the site. You'll see tons of stuff marked way, way down. And if you want more content while you're there, you can check out articles written by me, Mark, guys like Bo Martonic, Alex Gilstrom, Adam Moore, a whole bunch of really good whitetail hunters. And you can find all of our other podcasts and a whole bunch of video series over there at themediator.com. Go check it out. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.